2: I'm Laura Landon. On today's podcast, we discuss Ithaca Diaries, a memoir by Anita Harris.
0: Hi, I'm Anita Harris. Ithaca Diaries is a nonfiction memoir about college in the 1960s. It's kind of a gidget goes to the revolution. It starts with me on the first day of college at Cornell University in 1966. I'm carrying a pink suitcase that my uncle Leon gave me for my bat mitzvah. It ends on graduation day when I led a demonstration against the military on campus. But really, it's not all about me. Really, it's the story of the transformation of a university and a nation and a young woman at a time of incredible social, political, and creative change.
2: That's the sound of a video that journalist, author, and communications consultant Anita Harris created for her book, Ithaca Diaries, about her years at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. The book is based on the diaries Harris kept during her student years, as well as newspaper accounts about the turbulent events and protests of the 1960s. In the book's introduction, Harris describes it as a coming-of-age story told by a young woman as she tries to make sense of things while she and the society around her are having a nervous breakdown. It's also a story about politics during the era of the war in Vietnam, the struggle for civil rights, and women's rights. In Ithaca Diaries, Anita Harris takes a fresh look at a decade that she feels continues to influence us. As you'll hear, it wasn't all sex, drugs, and rock and roll for a young Jewish woman enrolled at an Ivy League college. We reached Anita Harris in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The interviewer is Bruce Wark.
1: Anita Harris, welcome to the New Books Network, and thank you so much for taking uh, time to talk about your really entertaining and insightful book, Ithaca Diaries. Um, Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm. I'm going to ask you first of all, just uh, why you wrote this book.
0: You know, um, this book I wrote in in large part to fulfill a promise that I made to myself when I was keeping my a diary in college. Um, I knew that I was living through a very amazing time in the late 1960s, and I always said one day I'm going to write about this. So now, 45 years later, I have. Another reason I wrote it was that it was a very profound experience and even a bit traumatic. It was was such a tumultuous time. I needed for myself, even at this age of uh, 60 plus, to understand what had happened and why. And I wanted to share that experience with people from newer generations that might not have gone through things like this. So it was both to fulfill a promise to myself and in a way, to heal.
1: Now, uh, you uh, used your diaries, and you make extensive use of the diaries, but you also had other sources you used in constru- reconstructing the history of those years.
0: I rely very heavily on the Cornell Daily Sun, which is still today a, an independent student newspaper, which includes reports from the Associated Press and other sources about what's going on all over the world. So that if I, for example, if I went to a demonstration and I wasn't uh, very detailed in my diary, I could look at the sun recount of of that demonstration and know exactly what had happened. I could also find out if there had been other demonstrations anywhere else in the country, and actually all the important stories that were going on all over the world.
1: Now, I was. This is just a question that I wondered about myself when I was reading the book. Um, you were a journalist after Cornell, but you never really wrote much for the student newspaper while you were there. I was
0: chicken. I was very shy, actually. And I just, I was really afraid. They, they had a process that you had to go through to compete. They called it, you were a compat. And my friends would urge me to try out, and I was just afraid.
1: And of course, Anita, the uh, stories that those student reporters had to cover were very dramatic in those years, uh, from 66 when you first went to Cornell, till 1970 when you graduated. Um, what was it like on the campus? What was it like? Would you say that the 60s were a revolutionary period, or, or how would you describe it?
0: I think of it as a time of transformation, transformation. And sometimes when I talk about the book, I call it story of the transformation of a student and of a university and of a nation because it tells really the story of my transformation from carrying the pink suitcase that my uncle Leon gave me for my bat mitzvah to graduation day when I ended up leading a demonstration against the military. Um, So I underwent a transformation the university was changing big time from a sort of old-fashioned, ivory tower, traditional campus to a major research university of the of the future. And of course, the nation was moving. Sometimes I, I think of it as the nation moving out of the 1950s, even though it's with this starts in the 1960s, the sort of stayed 1950s into uh, a new uh, a new uh, world of civil rights and um, women's, women's rights, race, racial rights, and, and just a whole transformation of the economy and just the way we looked at things.
1: Your book begins in, in good journalistic fashion. You begin with a, a sort of a, a high point, a dramatic event that happened during your years at Cornell. Uh, what was that event and, uh, and what happened there?
0: As it happened... During the spring of my junior year, I was taking a course. It was a French-lit course called uh, Existentialism and Revolution. It was French-lit because it was really about the French philosophers, Sartre, Camus, et cetera. But it was also one of the very first studies in a very new Afro-American okay. studies program, as it was called. And the class was specially selected, maybe 10 or 12 people, Half of us were white, half of us were black. And that semester, some of the black students who were in that class ended up becoming involved in the takeover of the student union building on Parents Weekend. They joined over 100 other black students and emerged carrying rifles. They were just brandishing them overhead. It was quite an iconic moment that was really covered... All over the world, um, in news media, all over the world, because I knew them, I ended up sort of standing guard there, um, and it was really uh, the first in a number of days. There was quite a standoff there, where state police and troopers came from all over the all over the the state to 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 keep order. So that event, that event to this day, is well-known by almost any Cornell student from any era. It's called, called the, straight, the straight takeover.
1: Now, uh, Anita, I wonder if you could read that section in the book.
0: Happy to read it, Bruce. I'm standing off to the left in about the fourth row of the crowd when the doors of the student union building swing open. Tom Jones, Larry Dixon, and about 80 other Afros walk out triumphant, rifles held high, ammunition belts across their chests, fists raised in the Black Power salute. And then I have from my diary, I can't believe it. These are guys I sat with in seminar. Skip is standing up there with his African trappings and a rifle. A kid is yelling, if any of you white motherfuckers tries to set foot in this place again, they stand there for I don't know how long, then march off to Wade Avenue with their guns to sign some agreement with the university. I trudge back to the dorm, exhausted and shocked.
1: Well, thanks for that reading, Anita. Um, you know, we we often think of the nineteen sixties as the era of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and and there is rock and roll in your book, but not as much sex or drugs—at least not for you. Um, why <laughs> was that?
0: For a while, Bruce, I was going to subtitle the book uh, "The Only Book About the Sixties Without." Sex and drugs, but then people told me it just would not sell. So I thought maybe I wouldn't use that. I don't know. I I was a kind of a quiet type, a shy type, and um, my mother uh, my mother is a brilliant woman and very sort of socially uh, involved. I, you know, she just she told me there's no rush on sex. You know actually she told me one time um, just you know you should you should really uh, wait because once you start with it then you want more so she, she sort of was my guide in that and drugs I really was kind of a writer and an artist artistic type and I really felt that it would goof me up I, I felt that I was taking in plenty as it was and I didn't really need any more crazy experiences.
1: To what extent do you think that maybe the way we think about the 60s is too stereotypical, that there were maybe a lot of us in that period, because I'm roughly your age, a lot of us going to school in those years, and we weren't indulging too much in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. To what extent was that your experience there? I mean, some people were, but not everybody.
0: It's hard to know. I recently got an email from a gentleman who had had been there at the time, and he said, where was I when all this was going on? And other people from even my class said to me, what college did you go to? And um, I, I think that, you know, it was a time of change. So not everything changes all at once. It was the sexual revolution. Well, that was news. It's not interesting to say that people aren't having Sex or or doing drugs. So, I think that there was really quite a lot of that going on. But um, not everyone. And it, and you know, I was I actually I wondered about that question myself. And I I had a high school reunion a few years ago, and I asked some of my old friends about it, and they all had been like virgins and such, and never would have thought of indulging in any of these activities. So I I think probably it depends who you were and where you grew up and what you believed in.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the sexual revolution, and and part of that, of course, was the women's movement. Um, And uh, I I believe you write in the book that Betty Friedan, you went to hear Betty Friedan, uh, who was then president of the um, National Organization for Women's Rights, and um, our National Organization for Women, and you went to hear her, and I just want to play a clip of Betty Friedan, who, talking about the women's rights movement, it's a little bit later, I think she's talking in the 70s, but it's the same sort of Betty Friedan message.
3: Millions and millions of ordinary American women, for the first time, they know the unique human experience of transcending the finite daily bounds of their own life of casting the net into the future not just by giving birth biologically to a child but by existential confronting the conditions of their life and finding their power to move with each other to change them changing the face of history changing the agenda of history changing the very possibilities of our life for our sons and our daughters the human passion the experience of making her history not just history. We, that is the reward for those of us who've done it. And no woman, no matter what the new problems she faces, and it isn't a happy ever after road. There are new problems each turn, turn go. No woman would ever turn back.
1: So, that, that's Betty Friedan, President of the National Women's Organization, or National Organization for Women. And uh, you write about her visiting Cornell in your book. Um, could you read us that section, Anita Harris? Sure.
0: On December 11th, I emerged from writing my papers to hear Betty Friedan, the feminist and author of The Feminine and the Mystique, speak at dinner at Whitby. That's my, the dorm where I'm living. Her view is that man is not the enemy, but, this is a quote from her talk, a victim of the usual sex roles, unquote. That although today's jobs don't depend on brute strength, women are uninvolved in decision-making and in politics are relegated mainly to looking up zip codes. That the long-haired, less consciously masculine, quote, new man, unquote, who's, again, uh, quote, who is strong enough to be gentle, is a suitable help-meet, to share responsibility equally with Ferdinand's new woman. Betty Ferdinand reminds me of my great-aunt Rachel, aggressive, forceful, overweight. I'm impressed with what she has to say, but when I tell my mother about it, my mother calls Ferdan a, well, I'm not supposed to say this word my Wiccan friends say. It rhymes with uh, hitch. My mother does not like Betty Ferdinand at all. <laughs>
1: And, and how did you feel about the women's rights movement and uh, your experience uh, seeing Betty Friedan? What, what did you feel about, uh, about that?
0: I think that I believed in what she was saying. I have some other passages from my diary in which I complain that my boyfriend only talks about himself and he doesn't care what, I have to say. So I'm very aware of women's role and what I would like it to be. I think that um, I was kind of surprised at my mother's attitude because my mother was a very strong woman. Um, And actually, my great-aunt Rachel had been a lawyer in the 1920s. But um, I don't think I particularly liked or saw the need for really organized feminism i, I was'm I, I, sorry i was I, I think I was not enough of a kind of a group person to really at that point become sort of involved in a movement
1: We talked a little bit earlier about stereotypes of the sixties you know around sex drugs and rock and roll and and maybe there's a stereotype too about the sixties being so liberated and maybe um not as liberated as we think, because I, I was a bit shocked, frankly, to read in your book about your experience when you went to the health clinic uh, to ask for birth control pill and uh, the reaction you got there. And I wonder if you could read that passage for us.
0: Oh, Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> if I must. <laughs> I'm graduating this year. I'm a senior. I'm a virgin. It's a sexual revolution. I'm tired of being badgered, of worrying about it, of holding out. It is simply time. Of course, now I'm in trouble. I've been leading up to this event for the last 400 pages. Well, actually, it's only 263 pages. But, uh, and I owe you some dramatic, passionate, graphically descriptive scene. But what can I say? For one thing, I'm still a prude. This is me writing now, actually. I'm still a prude and find it excruciatingly embarrassing to write about this stuff, i.e. s And besides That's not how it was All hell is breaking loose on campus There are fires, there are bomb scares There are beatings Don, that's my boyfriend Don and I go to a movie We go back to my apartment I invite him back to my room He kisses me, I hug him I tell him I'm embarrassed that this is my first time He's nice about it He's gentle as they say Uh, He moves slowly, he has a condom I can't believe I'm reading this aloud, Bruce. But anyway, he has a condom. Uh, It's a little awkward, but thank God he knows what he's doing. And at the end, I'm bleeding, but relieved to have overcome the last hurdle and survived. Except it isn't the last hurdle. Now I have to get birth control. Since everyone I know is on the pill, I figure this should be no big deal. So the next afternoon, I brave fires, bomb threats, protests, and what have you to go to 50 Fingers, which is what we call the gynecology practice at Gannett Clinic, to see a doctor. I get assigned to a motherly-looking one, late 40s, slightly stout, navy blue skirt, white blouse, hair in a bun. She asks why I'm here. I tell her I need a prescription for birth control. She examines me and thinks I've gotten my period because I'm bleeding. She asks me who I'm seeing, how long I've known him, and so on. It's very embarrassing. And then she says she thinks I'm too young and that she doesn't believe in giving the pill to unmarried women. Then she says, but if you still want birth control in a few months, come back and I'll fit you for a diaphragm. Drat. She's one of the clinic's birth control throwbacks. Suddenly, I understand now what the National Organization of Women and the Women's Liberation Front have been whining about. In a few months, I will have graduated, and it's now that I finally have a boyfriend. I'm 21. I should be able to make my own decision. But I'm not able to tell her that the blood is not from my period, that this is my first real relationship, that I feel humiliated by having to get examined and ask for pills. I'm also not able to tell her that she's right. I'm not ready, and that I'm secretly relieved. I thank her, get dressed, and get out of there as fast as I can. That night, I tell Don, I'm sorry, I really tried, but the doctor refused to give
2: me a prescription. He's nice about it. I'll get more condoms, he says. You're listening to an interview with Anita Harris, author of the memoir Ithaca Diaries, coming of age in the 1960s. The interviewer is Bruce Wark.
1: Well, Anita Harris, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the politics of the 1960s during your years at uh, Cornell, 1966 to 1970, uh, because there was a lot of politics on campuses in those years. Um, the war in Vietnam was very unpopular with a lot of students. And how did that unfold for you in the period you were at Cornell? How How did that play out?
0: That was really pretty amazing, Bruce. When I started Cornell, again with the little pink suitcase, um, I was a, I was kind of, I would call myself a student council type. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll get involved in student government. So I went to an organizing meeting for student government, and there were all these guys there who were Trotskyists. They were talking about revolution. They wanted to kind of take over student. Government, student government, so and abolish it, so that one day when the revolution came, students could. Uh, I'm sorry, when the revolution came, it would be just students against the state. So that was a kind of the the undercurrent. A lot of those same people were very much against the U.S. involvement in the Vietnamese War. For them, they saw it as um, an imperialist. Nation meddling in the affairs of an, a nation that had the right to determine who under under whose rule who should who should govern them, so to begin with, there was political and philosophical opposition to the war. What I think made it a lot more intense is that we were uh, the young men at age eighteen were subject to Being drafted and sent over to fight And if they flunked out of school If they didn't If they dropped out They would likely be called up for Induction So they had a very personal stake In seeing the war end At the same time You had A burgeoning movement for civil rights And you had um, At at Cornell There had been a There was a, a the visionary president, James Perkins, who believed that minorities deserved to have equal educational opportunities with whites, he started a program in which he brought in 40 minority students every, every year. And before I went to Cornell, about two years before I entered, there were eight black students. My first uh, my first year by my first year there were 80 second year there were um, 120 next year 160 and at the same time you had the movement for civil rights really escalating you had the black power movement so you had those strains uh, really working um, in the in the larger society in the broader society and then, Internationally, you had students who were, some, some of them uh, abroad were concerned about the Vietnam War, but say the French students were concerned about the way the universities were run. Students elsewhere were concerned about various state matters. In, in Mexico, there was a lot of upheaval. Of, of, upheaval. Likewise, in Germany, even in, um, in Israel, in Egypt, everywhere, students were just taking, trying to take charge
1: of course, you had a chapter on your campus of the Students for a Democratic Society, the SDS. And uh, I think I'm right here that uh, Bruce Dancis was one of the leaders of that group. Um, is that right? Yes, he was. And and did you know him?
0: I did. I did. I-
1: and, and how did you feel about the Students for a Democratic Society? I think your feelings uh, for that uh, kind of evolved over time, didn't they?
0: Yeah, probably my first year, they were just uh, the, the the group was really just being organized, and you know I, it was it, it's very interesting looking back because I could see that they had they held various demonstrations that had nothing to do with the war or or the revolution or the big picture. The first one that I came upon was, which I actually remember had to do with a boycott of bad food in the men's dorms. Then um, various other demonstrations uh, happened. There was one my first year where the campus literary magazine was confiscated by the local police because they thought it was obscene. And there were just all, all kinds of demonstrations that had nothing really to do with the war, but they had to do with free speech, civil rights, um, the role of students, the role of the university and the state. So Bruce came up in some of those demonstrations. And then there was a, another one that had to do with there's a big strike of the grape workers. And so I, I believe SDS was involved in that. And I must have known him, um, well, I, what I remember uh, also about him was that he was the first person I'm, campus to burn his draft card and to me that was really quite shocking. I could not imagine that you would disobey authority and the law in that way and as time went on I came to see that this was really quite an important movement I believed that they were trying to really do good and I felt that I should know more about it. And so I really I started going to meetings. And in the books, and, and really, I was like a, I thought I would be an artist. I thought I would be a mom and that I should, but I, and I really was not interested in politics. But I knew that they were important. So I started going to the SDS meetings, I think because I hoped to find a boyfriend who would take care of that part of things for me. That didn't really work out. But by the end, I ended up um, joining some demonstrations in, in, for various causes that I, I believed in. So it was they were a very persuasive bunch of guys. And I do say guys because they really were almost all men until my senior year when women, young women, started getting into the action and taking leadership.
1: Now, Bruce Dances has written his own uh, memoir of that time uh, called Resistor. And uh, a couple of years ago, he did a reading and a talk at Ithaca, at one of the bookstores there, I think. And I want to just play a clip. Uh, 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 what he said on that day when he actually tore his uh, draft card up. He was afraid to burn it because he was afraid that the, the, he couldn't light it or it would go out and he, so that uh, he ended up. Well, I'll let him explain. Here is Bruce Dances, uh talking about his book, Resistor, and about that incident on the Cornell campus when he um, tore up his draft card. I then took my draft card out of my pocket and tore it into four pieces, placed it in an envelope um, that had been stamped and addressed to my draft board and sealed it. I said a few more words about Vietnam, about racism in America and the need for change, and I walked over to a nearby mailbox and deposited the envelope. And I thought I was going to be arrested immediately. And from my FBI file, which is ran thousands of pages when I got it and provided a wonderful resource for this book, um, uh, it appears that at least there were six agents uh, and or informers witnessing my action. This is 1966. Uh, I mean, just one aside, I mean... I found references to, uh, there were agents coming to SDS meetings in October 1965. This is before anything illegal had been done by that chapter, it was brand new. And they were recording it. I said at a meeting, yes, I wanted to go down and hand out leaflets uh, on alternatives for the draft. The voice of Bruce Stansis, one of the leaders at Cornell University of Students for a Democratic Society, talking about his experiences uh, as the author of Resister, a story of protest and prison during the Vietnam War. And Anita Harris, uh, he was pretty prominent on the campus of Cornell when you were there.
0: He was really very, very dedicated and determined. I can remember once I ran into him, I was on my way to a ski trip at Mont Tremblant in Canada, and he said to me, the... Working class can't afford to go skiing, and I have just never forgotten that. And later on, I mean, he really stood by his principles, and he he went to jail for his beliefs. So I really have great I have great admiration for him.
1: Anita Harris, author of Ithaca Diaries: Coming of Age in the 1960s. About your years, Anita, at Cornell University from nineteen sixty six to nineteen seventy. And tragically, while you were there, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And Anita, you write quite a lot in your book about that week, uh, including uh, tensions between black and white students and uh, around the country as well, and a concert that uh, Joan Baez gave.
0: Exactly. On that Sunday night, Joan Baez, who's uh, come to campus with national anti-war activists, And now I'm I'm going to read again, if that's okay? Sure. Um, She she comes to speak on behalf of Draft Resistance. She gives a concert in Barton Hall. The place is packed with 7,000 people. Baez, beautiful, with long dark hair, sandals, guitar, sings, carry it on, then blown in the wind, in both Japanese and English. She gets us to sing Kumbaya and a Calypso version of the Lord's Prayer in harmony. She does some Beatles, some Simon and Garfunkel, and Leonard Cohen's Suzanne. She dedicates I'm a Poor Pilgrim, sung without accompaniment, to Dr. King. It's totally moving. I rise with the crowd to give her a standing ovation. I am-
3: Traveling
1: this wide world. Anita, here's a summary question. Um, What would you say you learned from your years at Cornell?
0: I think that over those years, I became a lot braver, a lot more questioning of authority, a lot more distrustful of institutions, more more committed to social change. Um, So when I started out, I thought, well, maybe I'd be married and have some kind of career, but not, wasn't really that serious uh, about it. I mean, I had actually considered medicine, but thought it was kind of not for women. Maybe you could teach high school. I could not be a nurse, which is what my father had suggested. So I left really feeling very mixed up because the world was just so changing. But when I left, I knew that I wanted to work to help make change. I wanted to do things for the cities. I wanted to work with people. I graduated, I think, with a much deeper understanding of the importance of politics and admiration for great leaders, but also of the difficulties that they and we faced as a nation. I mean, for me, I I think that I, to this day, really believe in the power of change more one person at a time. For me, I think maybe the most important thing was to have seen all these different people, all these different political movements, everyone really trying to do the right thing, change things for the better, but based on what it was, everyone had his or her own individual experience, individual truth. So I think I then became a journalist because I believe really most strongly in the importance of truth and the search for truth and sharing it and expressing it so that people can have good information on which to base their own decisions so that's a a big reason why I wanted to write this book. It's really why I became a journalist, and it's really how I carry out my life day to day.
1: Well, Anita Harris, thank you so much for talking with me and the New Books Network about your book *Ithaca Diaries: Coming of Age in the 1960s*.
0: Thanks for having me, Bruce. A pleasure.
2: been listening to an interview with Anita Harris, author of Ithaca Diaries, coming of age in the 1960s. The interviewer was Bruce Wark. I'm Laura Landon. See you next time on the New Books Network.